Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Julia Angelis. Julia joined Bailey Gifford in 2008 and is the portfolio manager of the Health Innovation Strategy. Prior to Bailey Gifford, Julia worked as a management consultant for McKinsey & Co, advising firms in Denmark, Russia, and Hungary. Since joining Bailey Gifford, Julia has worked on a number of regional and global investment strategies. Julia has a passion for the transformation taking place in healthcare, and it was this passion which led to the establishment of the strategy. She believes that over the next 10 years, healthcare systems around the world will experience a monumental change, and we will witness a move away from reactive medicine to a world where prevention and cure will become an integral part of healthcare driven by technology. Julia is also a member of the International Growth Portfolio Construction Group. Julia obtained a PhD in economics from the University of Aarhus in Denmark and speaks fluent Russian and Danish. Now we cover a lot of ground in this interview and Julia explains why society is on the cusp of a revolution in our understanding of human biology and approach to health. We talk about Moderna, the biotech firm which developed a COVID-19 vaccine. And I ask Julia to talk about how she thinks about the companies that she invests in. What is the key criteria she uses to determine whether to invest or not? And why is identifying disruptive businesses in healthcare key? We talk about the all-female team that Julia is a part of that runs the healthcare fund. And we also talk about the fact that as more women lead investment funds and are driving investment decisions, how will this shape the market on a global scale? Julia talks about the nature of asymmetry and the fact that investment returns are driven by a few big winners. And to wrap up, Julia shares some advice for women who want to become investors. This is such a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Julia, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. It's my pleasure to be here, Jana. Thank you so much for inviting me. So Julia, before we get into the questions, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically your journey to where you are today. So I'm an investment manager at Belle Gifford. And really becoming an investor is an outcome of serendipity. I have a PhD in macroeconomics and used to work for a short time as a management consultant. When I moved to Scotland together with my family, I was really not sure what I wanted to do. My husband mentioned the investment industry, and I was wondering, okay, how are my skills going to ever fit in that industry? And I was also skeptical at first. And then I came across Bailey Gifford. And what really appealed to me is the company's long-term investment approach and focus on growth. I thought this seems like a great way to approach investment in order to create both value and also impact on society. In addition to that, the job also offered a nice intellectual challenge. So while becoming an investor was really a serendipity, the decision to focus on healthcare for me within what I do at Bailey Gifford is an outcome of my passion for health and medicine. I have always been interested in medicine and even considered studying it at university. 
And as an investor, I got this unique opportunity to learn about and engage with the healthcare industry. And so far, it has been an incredibly rewarding journey. That's amazing. And, and I'm curious, what attracted you to become an institutional investor or to invest at the institutional level, as opposed to, say, become a VC, a venture capitalist, or move into private equities? To be honest, there was no particular reason for that. One of the major reasons was supporting the people who are retiring and providing them with a good opportunity to retire in a safe way. And that's primarily clients of Beta Gifford. And that's one of the first attractions. I think it's also the nature of the management firm itself. I think within VC world, different kind of structural challenges they face when they invest in, in, for example, in the healthcare space, where there is some limited time horizons, whereas Beta Gifford is generally committed for the long term. I'd love to put the biotech and healthcare sector into context for listeners. How would you define biotech and healthcare? And then can you give us an idea of how big the sector is globally and in the UK as well as Europe? So the way, first of all, we think about the opportunities is much broader than that. We are investors in healthcare space or rather actually in health. So we think about the opportunity much broader than just biotech or pharma companies. And what we're really focusing on is any companies that can drive a transformational change in healthcare. And the companies that can do it now, it's not necessarily companies that comes from traditional healthcare sector. So we've already seen like Alphabet, for example, they have really big initiatives in that space by leveraging their artificial intelligence platform or companies like Amazon also entering the space. So in a way, the way we think about the opportunity in healthcare space is much more wider than biotech. But to your question, biotech, how we define that space. So first of all, again, this space is evolving rapidly. And as we speak every week, there are probably another company that's coming up with new technology and approach to solve some of the most challenging problems of healthcare. So our opportunity set is immense and keeps evolving rapidly. And we're also engaging with the private companies to learn about the space of change. We're also looking at this globally. So I wouldn't kind of be able to quantify precisely in the numbers, but what also matters is actually, it's not how many companies out there, but how many unique businesses out there. And our strategy is all about trying to identify these unique opportunities and really exploring what makes them future winners and what increases their odds of success. In terms of the performance of the sector then, I'm really curious to know how well it's performed in the last 10 years and especially how well it performed in 2020 for obvious reasons and then what growth is expected over the next 10 years. If you look at the biotech sector more specifically, so it certainly performs in line with the technology sector, which is quite interesting over the past 10 years. And this is in the environment where, you know, biology still remains highly uncontrollable and where a lot of innovation, you know, and development happening in the dark because we don't really understand what we are targeting. And it's still remarkable to see how well the sector managed to perform relative to the global index. And it outperformed the global index, but certainly done in line with the technology sector. But what we're really excited about is actually the future because the nature of the biotech businesses is changing rapidly. Because of this increasing understanding of the biology and how we can start taking control of it, the drug development now is becoming increasingly more controlled than it used to be. 
So this should really increase the chances of success of, of these companies. And that's why they're going to be more successful businesses out there and also more transformational companies out there. So overall performance, we think, is going to be even probably better. But, you know, you can never tell. Such an exciting space. Bailey Gifford already invests £29 billion in health-related companies across several funds. And this is taken from your website where you say that society is on the cusp of a revolution in our understanding of human biology and approach to health. Can you elaborate on this statement? How exactly are we on the cusp of a revolution in healthcare? There is a danger of overusing the world of revolution and sometimes it's not associated with good things like a Russian revolution, for example. But anyway, <laughs> in human health, we certainly have a good revolution. And maybe to take a step back, we can think about human health as a problem of large numbers and high complexity. And just imagine, we are built from trillions of DNA base pairs and hundreds of thousands of proteins. In addition to this biological data, our health is also hugely impacted by our lifestyles and socioeconomic backgrounds. And until very recently, we didn't have any means to collect and interpret this data, data that, which is relevant for human health. And therefore, it's not surprising at all that the modern healthcare systems remain so inefficient of managing human health. And I always think about them more like a sick system rather than health system, because we tend to go to the doctor when we're already sort of quite sick. Yeah. So why a revolution and why now? The reason for that is that first time in human history, we have tools that can help us to gather data relevant to human health. And the great examples of it would be like genomic sequencing technology and wearable devices. But also what's important that in addition to those data gathering tools, we also have very powerful technologies in the form of machine learning and AI to help us to derive the insights from big data and what is actually driving kind of forces behind many diseases. And finally, not only we are able to generate these valuable insights about human health, we also have a wide range of different types of medicines, like cell and gene therapies, antibodies, and messenger RNA. These new medicines allow for a very targeted approach to diseases. So we think about the new era of medicine that will be driven by the convergence of different technologies. And it's just as I mentioned, you know, it's the first, you know, our ability to gather data, to make interpretation, but also the tool that helps us to target biology very precisely. And we think that those technologies will help us to shift from reactive to proactive care and increase chances of cures. And what also is encouraging is that the toolbox we have now, and as I just mentioned before, the number of biotech companies is exploding, and it's generally happening now. I mean, we see the toolbox keeps continuously expanding. And hardly a week passes now when I don't hear about a new exciting approach that has a potential to impact the future of healthcare in a profound way. It is really the space to be in. Julia, you're part of a healthcare fund run by an all-female team. And I'm going to quote from Bloomberg, it surged past its peers to a 65% gain in 2020, largely thanks to your decision to invest in medical stock. Moderna Incorporated, again, according to Bloomberg, the fund's top performer and approximately up 700% in 2020 because of the success of its coronavirus 
vaccine trials. I have to ask you, what's it been like to be an investor in one of the COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And indeed, Moderna was one of the important contributors to our performance. But it's also important to know that many of our other holdings have been performing very strongly as we were making the bet on this new type of healthcare. And Moderna, of course, fits very well into that. Another important aspect to raise is that we are not been investing in Moderna because it's been developing a coronavirus vaccine. So we actually been investors since company's IPO back in 2018. The reasons why we've been excited about the company is that they were able to introduce an entirely new type of medicines that could change how we approach many different diseases. And of course, prophylactic vaccines is just one of the area. So the beauty of messenger RNA technology is that it has such a wide range of applications. So from prophylactic vaccines, they can also possibly apply to cancer and rare diseases. The second attraction for us was that Moderna has a differentiated approach to managing the risk and developing a powerful technology platform. So while the idea of making messenger RNA into a drug is very elegant and very intuitive, there were many, many scientific challenges to deal with in order to make it a reality. And Moderna managed to raise a lot of capital and attract some of the best talent to overcome these challenges. And that's one of the reasons why COVID-19 vaccine became possible for them. So they were the first company to move to clinical trials and actually to generate vaccine. And now they're still kind of staying very much ahead of the curve. The final reason why we've been supporting the company is also, you know, we got to know the company roughly two years prior they went public. And that also helped us to appreciate the company's strategy and culture and build relationship with the management. And generally kind of understand their long-term ambition. And this is the way we invest in companies. And to your question, the experience of being shareholders of Moderna, you know, a lot of things have been validated for us through this experience is because we see the commitment of management to make a difference. But also the technology itself has been hugely de-risked through this experience of COVID-19 vaccine development, because now suddenly this technology has been tested in thousands of patients. And now it's going into the millions. So it makes a substantial change for Moderna as a company going forward. Which is incredible. And as you said, Julia, there are other biotech healthcare companies in your healthcare fund. You've talked a little bit about the reasons that you've invested in Moderna. How do you think more generally about the companies you invest in? And what is the key criteria you use to determine which companies are right for you as an investor? So every company in our portfolio has to go through a rigorous investment research process. And one of the key aspects we're looking for in general, whether it's biotech or any other business, is this company's ability to drive transformational change in healthcare. All the research is bottom-up. And some of the major criteria is, for example, we are looking at what problem does the company solve for the healthcare system? Why should the company remain relevant in the future? Does it have a differentiated culture? And what is the evidence that the company is genuinely caring about their patients? Of course, we also lay out different scenarios while thinking about the possible upside. And the minimum bar is two and a half times over the next five years with a relatively higher conviction. So those are sort of the major criteria. 
And I've heard you talk about the importance of identifying disruptive businesses. You talked about how transformative these businesses are. How are these companies thinking about the market differently, which makes them stand out and which makes you think, you know what, this group of people, this organization or this startup will change healthcare potentially? This is a very exciting area to explore, but I'll just try to keep it as short as I can. As I already mentioned, the reason why we're focusing on these disruptive businesses, because this is the opportunity of a lifetime for the creation of this type of businesses, because we have an opportunity to entirely rethink how we approach health. And this is, of course, leads to disruption of existing models and tools. So if a company becomes successful in driving change, then it should be a very attractive investment opportunity by default. So in our strategy, we are looking for these long-term winners that in the case of success, not only be able to deliver attractive returns, but also make a significant impact on patients' lives. So to your question, how are those businesses different, you know, how they're driven, how they get created? We believe that actually the most exciting innovations going to come from a smaller companies, a bit younger, that have no conflicts of interest in with existing business models. They have no existing revenues, but they have this opportunity to rethink and to reimagine how the future could look like. And that takes a certain type of people, of course, people who already have some experience, but people also who come from entirely different backgrounds from healthcare. And we think this sort of interdisciplinary approach to healthcare, this is exactly what leads to those disruptive businesses. Maybe just to give you a very interesting example, it's actually one of my favorite examples, is in the case of diagnostic, where we see a company called Butterfly Network, which has designed a portable ultrasound device, which can be used potentially not just by, you know, radiologists or practitioner, general practitioner. But it can also end up in the hands of patients like us, you know, us trying to look at our heart and examining how it works. And this device is remarkable on many levels. So first, it's the cost. So it's hundreds of times cheaper than existing devices out there, which are kind of closed down in the, in the hospitals, in the dark rooms. Then it's user-friendly, you know, as I say, like possible even patients can use it. And this, this is, again, this is a remarkable achievement because normally... If you want to become a radiologist, it takes you like five years of university degree and it still becomes a very difficult job because there's so many different ways to look at those images. And this company solved the interpretation by applying machine learning to that. And again, it's an example of how you can bring another technology trying to apply in the healthcare space. And of course, there is also reinvention of the business model because those devices are so cheap. They charge only $2,000 for hardware. The key revenue driver in the long term is going to be software because it's all about interpretation, storage, you know, and helping to increase the diagnostic precision. So suddenly the business model around ultrasound being turned upside down, where traditional companies making money on hardware and servicing, whether this business is just going to drive it through the software. Again, so to create this type of businesses ideas, you need people coming from the outside and also those who are able to bring different disciplines together. And this is not always straightforward at all, because sometimes when you bring technology people, IT people and biologists together, they're not talking the same language. So that's another skill that the company has to master, how you actually start bridging these two cultures when people start talking the same language. And when normally what unites these people is idea, is a vision. And there were the barriers that to be overcome because they're about to solve big problems. 
And this is sort of companies we're looking at. We are not just looking for marginal improvement. We're looking for those who can address the big issues in healthcare. You've said so many interesting things there, Julia. Having the ability to identify potentially a common language, bring people together from different disciplines so that you can then create something that's completely transformative. I mean, that is not an easy skill. And yet that is exactly what is required for this type of change. Absolutely. Yeah. In theory, it's all very intuitive, you know, when you talk about interdisciplinary collaboration, but actually how it works in practice is not trivial at all. And and that's why we spend a lot of time trying to understand how companies overcome these challenges, how they make these cultural bridges, and why it might lead to successful organization and culture. And very often, I think it's such a messy process, and there's nothing linear about it either. Absolutely not. You put it so well, you know, absolutely nonlinear. And companies, sometimes they have to go through those periods. Also, very often, when we get to know the company in a public space, you don't have really the background, how the culture has evolved. And here, where we have an advantage as investors, because we can start engaging with companies in the private space. And then you can start exploring this volatility or this nonlinearity, you know, how they evolve as an organization. And we know a few examples when they have to make quite a few adjustments as they have developed because they just couldn't get the balance right. And they couldn't understand what was the key ingredients to make it work. And it was very helpful for us to watch that evolution. And then eventually when they got there, it was kind of a very rewarding experience for everyone. Amazing. Amazing. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I think I've said that you're part of an all-female team in Bailey Gifford. So Marina Record and Rose Nguyen, I I hope I've pronounced her surname correctly, are also on the team. Uh How might your approach to how you choose to invest differ to, say, an all-male team of fund managers in the same industry? Uh, That's a tricky question. (laughs) The way I think about it, I don't think the investment approach is really driven by gender. The way we invest is very representative of how we approach investing at Bailey Gifford. As I mentioned before, we are long-term and gross-orientated investors. And I do believe that in order to increase your chances of success as an investment team, first, it's important to have a full alignment on investment philosophy. And second is to get the right mix of personalities such that there is a diversity of thought, complementary skill set, and trust within the team. And in the case of our team, I genuinely believe we are very different individuals despite being all female and we complement each other really, really well. So I don't think it's gender really. For me, it's investment philosophy and, and the way you kind of manage the team, you know, and trust is one of the biggest elements of it. Can I ask, Julia, if you're happy to share, what are some of the complementary skill sets or differences in the team? So yourself, Marina, Rose, how are you different in what you bring to the table? It's funny because we have another member of the team who attends our stock discussions quite frequently, and he helps us to promote the strategy outside Betty Gifford. And he was observing differences in personalities. And he basically branded us like different individuals. So I am a dreamer. Marina is a philosopher. And Rose is pragmatist. So the way it kind of works in practice. So I'm the one who have all these wacky, crazy ideas. I like to dream. I like kind of creative thinking. I love imagining what company can become and kind of pushing the boundaries. But the rose, she's really good start question, but actually what the likelihood of that? What needs really to happen to get us to this scenario? 
she always brings me back to reality a bit and thinking, okay, there is some steps towards that vision. Let's think about what actually it's going to take us there and how much conviction we have in those kind of, of those steps become reality on the way, you know, and that helps you to build overall conviction in your kind of blue sky scenarios. So that's the way Rose helps me to recalibrate my blue sky thinking. While Marina, she's really excellent. And the reason she's philosopher, she always takes us back to the process because it's so easy to be excited by one particular company. And because most of the companies would have an exciting technology and also kind of enthusiastic management teams, but we also take it back to the basic like an our investment process and always kind of say, okay, how does it fit? Are we consistent here with our approach? So really to avoid any kind of behavioral and process-wise deviations, because we believe that in order to kind of to be successful in the long term, you need to have some repeatability in the your investment process. And that's what Marina helps us to keep that consistency in place. That is super interesting. Now, as more women lead investment funds and drive investing decisions at the institutional level, how do you think this will shape or may shape the market on a global scale? First of all, this is kind of encouraging trend and absolutely want to see more women, you know, joining the industry and taking on more responsibilities of investment. And overall, I just find it's hard to generalize. It would be very much dependent on what investment philosophy these women would follow. And that would, of course, have implications, what kind of impact they could have. But my hope is that the attraction to join the industry would be to become real investors by providing patient capital to growth companies. And if this will be the case, then I think the overall impact should be very positive. I think there is an amazing opportunity for us to shift the industry from short-termism to long-term approach. We all look for some purpose in life and do something valuable in our lives. And I think in investment, you can do so many things on that front. And hopefully that aspect would also be attracting women. If we're thinking about solving some of these really big problems in healthcare, for example, you need patient capital, you need money and investors that will support these companies along their journey. And the journey, as we said before, it's not linear. It is very volatile and unpredictable. And these things take time. You're spot on with that. And because we're also trying to back the most Exciting companies in the sense that, you know, they're trying to push the boundaries of the science. They try to come up with the most novel solutions. And by definition, those are going to be risky endeavors and they need the capital to support them over the long term. And in some cases, the company could have an amazing technology, but if they don't have patient capital supporting them, those technologies can be become redundant overnight. So long-term investors have such an important role to play. And actually, patients place also to the benefit of the investors, because if you're just acting on short-term use, you would never be able to get all the value from that investment. But if you're patient enough and you have this ability to wait until success, then the returns, you know, the upside is almost unlimited. And as I mentioned before, our approach to long-term investing just fits so nicely into the healthcare space. So it's a full alignment between us and the companies we invest in. Yes, it makes so much sense. Now, I've got a general investing question for you, Julia, Mm -hmm. more personal. What are you excited about in the world of investing in 2021 and also just looking ahead to the next five to 10 years? It's probably going to be more like a summary of what I've been talking before, because it's just the trends that start coming up. And I see those trends just getting bigger and bigger. So 
in more general terms, I'm excited about the increasing number of investment opportunities that fall in the category of disruptors and unique businesses. And it's remarkable to see how the convergence of different technologies leads to the creation of those disruptive products and impactful products across many sectors, not just healthcare. And another kind of element with what I'm really, really excited about is a focus on more purposeful investment approach where sustainability and impact factors become an integral approach of investing. I genuinely believe that this is not just nice factors to have, but this is something that could lead to superior returns over the long term. And I'm always encouraged to see that when it comes to ESG, when it comes to impact investing, women are leading the way. Again, I know we don't want to generalize too much, but the data does suggest that women tend to think about, yes, obviously returns are important, but you know, what does this mean? What is the knock-on effect? How is this going to impact society? And I think that's how we need to be looking at the world now, because as we've seen, if we continue to be very one-dimensional and transactional and only think about returns, we may get into a very difficult situation as we already are with the environment and other aspects. I can't agree more. And I think that was really changing now. Their attention to the sustainability factors and impact, this just has been growing really rapidly. And many clients now, you know, some of the Nordic countries who are leading the space, some pension funds wouldn't look at the strategy, investing in a strategy that doesn't consider ESG. Mm-hmm. So, which I think is a big shift. I think just the way we are still practicing it, the industry has to evolve quite a lot. So we avoid any greenwashing and actually we generally do like proper bottom-up sustainability investment rather than just ticking some boxes. Yeah. And that's an area I'm also quite excited about and very passionate about and something we would like to explore more, how we can approach it in a very thoughtful way. Now, I've come across this quote, again, I think is an interview that you did a few weeks back, and you said that the nature of asymmetry is such that investment returns are driven by a few big winners. The main constraint to us appreciating that potential is our imagination. Can you elaborate on this for us? No, no, absolutely. So what we're trying to do in our strategies is to explore the asymmetric nature of investment returns. So asymmetry means that for a particular investment, the maximum possible loss could be 100%, while the possible upside could be multifold. So we also know that most companies don't matter when it comes to investment returns. In fact, there is academic research that is demonstrating most of the value created by the equity market over the past few decades could be attributed to less than 1% of companies. And this kind of remarkable findings, because that's exactly what it tells you, you know, most companies don't matter. So the goal is to identify all these rare companies. And in order to do that, we need to explore the long-term upside in a very imaginative way, as we will be looking at the businesses that drive change. And very often, and as we've been discussing just uh, in the case of Bartifly, you know, there is no pre-existing models and markets, you know, you can rely on when you try to say, okay, how this market could look like. Because, for example, in, in diagnostic space, software was never been part of the business model. So we really need to be creative in imagining the future opportunities of these companies. And that's where kind of imaginations comes in. And the only place where we can fail is not being creative or imaginative enough what these companies can become. And it could possibly stop you from investing in those transformational businesses. 
So that's what we consider actually to be our major risks is is the failure of identifying those disruptive businesses with those amazing growth opportunities. So that's what keeps you up at night, Delia. Sometimes I say I would do my job like 24 hours because it's just so exciting. It's like you're learning every day and you have opportunity to meet the most incredible people, you know, people who are actually building the future. And it's such a privilege supporting these people on their journey. So if anything, I, I feel always so humbled by the experience, by getting exposure to this remarkable minds. And it's, it's a continuous learning. And that's exactly what I was talking about in the beginning is that sort of intellectual challenge that probably keeps me awake <laughs> because sometimes you wake up and say, I don't understand anything, you know, <laughs> it's just how the world evolves. I can imagine it's very technical. There's a lot of detail around a lot of these new innovations and very niche areas within healthcare. Absolutely. So science could be a challenge, but we have ways to work around it. So first, of course, by interest, enthusiasm, you know, naturally you're going to be looking and learning about scientific discoveries and different approaches. But we don't think you can really differentiate yourself on the deep understanding of science and trying to attach probabilities to that. We need to have a conviction why now is different and what really skews odds of success for the companies by using this approach. So we have very different way of thinking about it. But absolutely, we still need to go into some technicalities. And sometimes it's also the structural one, reimbursement, how the markets work and from country to country is different. So there are always different challenges you have to think about. You've shared so much, Julia. I have one final question for you. What would you advise women who want to engage much more around investing and may have a specific interest in biotech or healthcare or ESG and impact investing? What would you say to them? So one thing to mention is, unfortunately, the finance industry still has a relatively negative reputation. Because of greed and short-termism, and it's understandable why many people want to stay away from that industry. However, it's also important to differentiate between different investment houses and as the good investment managers out there. So that probably would be a, one of the first messages. And I would encourage women to generally consider a career with investment management as it provides an opportunity to influence the future of the world by channeling the capital. And this could be an incredible, powerful role and also gives you a lot of purpose. You know, this is a unique position. And if we want to have a better future, we certainly need more diversity of thought in the investment community. So the job of an investor could be very exciting and impactful. And not surprisingly, I believe that healthcare is the most exciting area to look for the investment opportunities. However, it doesn't have to be just healthcare. There are just so many other exciting technologies that can impact many different areas of our life. Julia, I think that's a wonderful place to end on. I, I just want to say thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing as much as you did. And I want to acknowledge you because you are a role model and an inspiration to so many women out there. And as you say, we need more women sitting at the table who are making these investing decisions so that they can shape the world in a way that makes sense and reflects their worldview as well. Absolutely. And you've been extremely generous to me, but yeah, I can't agree more with you. And thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.